Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To my bed crimers, hi, how are you doing? I hope you're having a great day. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Let me just ask that after watching and or listening to this video, if you find you enjoyed it or learned something, do me a favor, smash the like button. It's free, it's easy, and it really helps with the algorithm. February in Indiana used to mean snowfall in several feet, not inches, freezing cold winds howling through the trees, and a pale gray sky. But on February 13th of 2017, it was unseasonably warm in Delphi. While teachers were in school due to a makeup snow day, the kids were not. Teenagers Libby German and Abby Williams, wanting to get out of the house, asked to take a hike in the middle of the day along the trail system near an old and abandoned railway bridge. Libby's grandmother, with whom she lived, said yes. Libby's older sister agreed to drop the two friends off at the hiking trails. She would be the last person in the family to see Libby and Abby alive. It would be 22 hours before their families found out where they were and what had prevented them from showing up at the agreed-upon location to be picked up. It was the worst possible outcome. Both girls were dead, and it was clear they had been murdered. It would be another five years before Delphi local Richard Allen was arrested in connection to the crime. The state suddenly announced it had Bridge Guy. The five-foot, four-inch-tall Allen worked at the local CVS. He really had been hiding in plain sight for all those years. But now, as Allen's trial is scheduled to begin in January of 2024, his defense team is waging a war, trying to get their client deemed an innocent man and trying to shift the blame for the crime onto a group of people who they say harm the two girls as part of a ritualistic sacrifice. It's the stuff that scary movies are made of. But what the defense is saying flies in the face of what we know about Richard Allen, namely that he admitted to a park ranger to being in the trail system on the day and during the period when Libby and Abby were kidnapped off the bridge and coerced down to their deathbeds in the woods, likely by a firearm Allen was holding. Two, that a bullet found between the girls' bodies was also reportedly traced to a firearm found at Allen's home. Three, that Allen has a blue jacket matching the one Bridge Guy was wearing. And four, that he reportedly confessed several times on a jailhouse call with his wife, Kathy. But it also sounds like there's no DNA connection between Richard Allen and the crime scene, at least that we, the public, know about. So Allen's defense team is arguing in this 136-page memorandum that their client is innocent and that the investigators failed to fully research a group of men in Indiana who are both white nationalists and who practice something called Odinism, which is an ancient Nordic religion. The defense is claiming that evidence left at the crime scene mimics Odinist runes or symbols or letters. The runes per the defense can be seen in the way branches and sticks were placed over the two girls' bodies and in a marking on a tree made out of Libby's blood. The defense attorneys spent many pages in the memo trying to show that one five-foot, four-inch tall man, Richard Allen, 
could not have pulled off this double murder alone. They say it would have been impossible for one man of short stature to control two young females off the bridge over a fairly deep creek that is three and a half feet deep in some places and beyond it into the woods without one or both of them running away from him or screaming. Of course, the defense's theory fails to consider that perhaps, as I said earlier, Alan may have been holding a firearm and using it to coax the two teens to where he could isolate them. By the way, I don't know what Alan's short stature has to do with his ability to manipulate these young girls into following his commands and into carrying out the activities. Short men can be as muscled as tall men depending on how much time they spend in the gym. Don't be dissing on the short men defense team. My dad is a short man. The other activities the defense cites as proof one man could not have done this include 1. How the bodies were found, namely Abby being found without any blood on her body, aside from some near her fatal neck wound. Note that whoever harmed the girls took the time to dress Abby in Libby's sweatshirt, bra, and jeans and managed to not get any of the red stuff on the clothing. This indicates that Abby was not wearing any clothes when she was done in and that somehow the blood was washed from her body. Libby, on the other hand, was without clothes and had much of the red stuff on her. The defense said it appeared that the bodies had been dragged to their final resting places near a large tree. But again, the girls were missing for 22 long hours. I believe one man could pull all this stuff off in that amount of time. That would have given the perpetrator plenty of time to play out his ghoulish games with their bodies. Unfortunately, the defense's memo wasn't published with actual crime scene photos. I say this not because I want to see Libby and Abby in that horrible state, but rather because I'd like to see exactly how the branches and sticks were on their bodies. The defense would have us believe those branches were carefully laid over the bodies to mimic rune symbols. They would also have us believe that the blood on the tree was painted in the shape of an F. Here's how the defense described the arrangements of branches and sticks over Libby and Abby's bodies. I'm not going to read their description verbatim. By the way, this is my shorter synopsis of what they said. I just basically cut out some words because their description was very wordy and repetitive. By the way, as I read this, I'm going to share an illustration of what the defense described from Court TV. So Court TV had this drawing made based on the description of the branch arrangements in the memo. So this drawing is not from the defense or the prosecution. It's simply Court TV's interpretation of what was said in the defense's memo. So Court TV did not have any actual crime scene photos to base their illustration on. What I'm trying to say is do not take this as 100% a depiction of what was seen in the crime scene. And all of that was me being very wordy and verbose. Here we go. The crime scene was ghoulish. Libby was found at the base of a tree with four branches of varying sizes intentionally placed in very specific and arranged pattern on her body. She was positioned on her back with her left arm stretched above her head, touching the base of a large tree. 
Her right arm was placed alongside her body. Her hands were both covered in blood. More of the red stuff was seen all over her body from head to toe. One large tree branch had been placed on her left shoulder. This branch was so long that it extended over her head by several feet and below her legs several feet as well. Two smaller branches formed a V where her legs joined her body with both sides of the V extending upward toward her head, with one branch extending to the left of Libby's head and the other to the right. The last of the four branches extended across her body on a line from her right shoulder to left shoulder. Now here's what they say about Abby. Abby was found a few feet from Libby. Her body was on an angle to Libby's, with Abby's legs just a few feet from Libby's legs. Both of their heads were a few feet farther apart from each other. Abby was not at the base of a tree. She was fully clothed. In fact, Abby was dressed in Libby's sweatshirt shirt and jeans. No blood appeared on Abby's clothing. Abby's hands were clean as were her feet. No blood. Abby was on her back. Her elbows were bent with her right and left arms placed on her chest. By the way, I think Court TV got this one point wrong in their drawing. Those arms don't look like they're on Abby's chest. Abby's left leg was straight while her right leg was bent at the knee. Like Libby, those involved in the murder had placed tree branches in a very specific pattern on top of Abby. The pattern looks very similar to an asterisk, consisting of three tree branches all joined in the middle. At least one branch appears to have been cleanly cut by some instrument, like an electric saw, indicating that this was a preconceived plan. Guys, let me interject here. Why would the perpetrator only saw off one of these branches instead of all of them if this was a preconceived plan, as opposed to a perpetrator simply grabbing branches around him to cover the bodies? You'd think they would have sawed off all the branches to make sure that there was no mistaking the symbol. Above Abby's head were smaller sticks that had been placed over her hair, crudely mimicking horns or antlers. So that was the so-called pattern over Abby. What really makes me think that the defense is stretching the truth with all of this is that a well-respected reporter named Barbara McDonald, who has been covering this case from the beginning and who is responsible for the Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders podcast, received drawings from sources said to be close to the investigation. The drawings depict the patterns of how the branches were laid over Libby and Abby. If you look at McDonald's drawings, you can see that they really don't seem to mimic any of the rune symbols. McDonald was also given a drawing or image of the blood found on the tree. To me, it would be a huge stretch to say that that pattern formed the letter F as the defense is claiming. Per McDonald, the investigators were more inclined to believe the perpetrator placed the branches over the bodies in a random manner in a bid to conceal them, so there was nothing intentional about the placement, and that perhaps he abandoned the effort as time went on and he feared getting caught, which would explain why there weren't 
more branches over the bodies. McDonald also said that investigators told her they thought the red markings on the tree were a partial palm print belonging to the perpetrator. So the investigators, if all of this is true, have a very different take on the crime scene than Richard Allen's defense team does. I've heard some people say, well, why cover up the bodies if you're posing them in a ghoulish manner? Is it possible that the perpetrator wanted to get away from the crime scene for the time being, possibly to wash up, and then return to it later at night? Most people who commit these crimes don't want to get caught. I think he would have wanted to keep the crime scene a secret for as long as possible, and putting the branches over the bodies may have helped conceal them from, say, overhead helicopters or planes looking for them. I tried drawing a stick figure of Libby over the drawing of the branch pattern that Barbara McDonald showed. It was impossible to get Libby's groin area where the branches form a V, while also also placing her shoulders where one branch was laid horizontally over Libby from shoulder to shoulder per the defense. Even when I looked for other V's in the drawing, it still didn't work. This begs the question, did I draw it incorrectly? Or is the defense simply trying to push the crime off on others? Because that's their job to defend their client whether he's guilty or not. By the way, I'm sort of surprised that the defense didn't go the route of trying to implicate that scary dude, Kagan Klein, and his father. So much of the talk over the past five years was about Klein, who had made a fake Snapchat account under the name Anthony Schatz, where he lured young girls, including, allegedly, Libby German, into communicating with him using a photo of an attractive guy who actually lives in Canada with his wife, the zoftic and not conventionally attractive Kagan Klein had these young girls believing he was Anthony Schatz. He would then coax the girls into sending him suggestive photos of themselves. Libby apparently was supposed to meet up with this guy she thought was this cute Anthony Schatz on the day she was done in. By the way, Klein was recently sentenced to 43 years in prison for catfishing underage victims, soliciting images from them, you know what kind of images, committing identity theft, obstructing justice, and possessing a bunch of child pee. But let's get back to Richard Allen and his lawyers. I feel like Occam's razor would say the branches were placed over the bodies to conceal them, not to mimic some rune symbols. Occam's razor states that the simplest explanation is preferable to the one that is more complex. Clearly, a person can interpret those stick arrangements and that letter on the tree or that pattern on the tree in different ways. The defense team sees Odinist symbols. McDonald's sources told her they think it is just a perpetrator who wanted to cover up the crime and maybe abandon that plan before finishing the job. And 
perhaps he reached up to the tree at some point to steady himself, leaving that partial imprint of blood behind. To me, this whole situation beautifully illustrates how defense attorneys go about coming up with alternate theories in their attempts to create reasonable doubt. Stay tuned because I'm going to make a video about the so-called Odinists living in or near Delphi, Indiana and Rushville, Indiana, who the defense wants us to believe committed this crime against Libby and Abby. Note that the distance between these two places is 127 miles, which would take about two hours to drive one way. Did you learn anything here? If so, smash that like button and I'll see you next time on Bed Crime Stories.